Hi, this is Pastor Patrick of Calvary Chapel, Wichita. I pray that the Lord will richly bless you as you listen to this message. As you turn to Revelation chapter 2, in addition to remembering those who have given their lives for our country, it's never a bad time to remember those who are giving their lives to serve the Lord. And of course, we think of Pastor Saeed so often, a Calvary Chapel pastor out of Calvary, Boise, who is in prison even as we speak in Iran. He came to Christ at the age of 20 in 2000. He's 33 years old, and he spent his early 20s helping plant churches, home churches, underground churches in Iran. This is not what I was doing when I was in my early 20s. Um, but from the time he was saved, he, he was a former Muslim, gave his life to serve the Lord, especially in his home nation. He's now an American citizen. But he was so active in ministry, he was actually arrested in 2009 and then released. He was released on the condition that he would stop planting churches, which he did. You know, his yes is yes and his no is no. But last year he returned. He fought um, under the umbrella of a secular organization to help establish an orphanage. In fact, it was going to be a state-run orphanage because he still very much has a heart for the Iranian people. He was promptly arrested. His passport seized jailed for several months without even charges being filed, and then in January sentenced to eight years in the worst prison in Iran. And uh, we receive word on a fairly consistent basis of the beatings and the torture that he's receiving, not just at the hands of his guards, but also at the hands of other inmates. He's been in solitary confinement several times, and the medical staff at the prison refuses to treat him because he's a Christian, he's an infidel, he's unclean. And so we know he has several significant health issues. Uh, one of his kidneys may be failing, and yet he's being denied medical treatment. Did I mention that he's an American citizen? Sadly, this isn't unique. Uh, we pay particular attention to Pastor Saeed because he's a Calvary pastor, but he's far from the only pastor jailed in Iran. In fact, two assemblies pastors were arrested just this last week, and the third pastor and his wife, who had previously been released, were rearrested and joined the many already in prison. Iran one nation, it's an easy one to point at. It's not the only place where things like this go on. Syria, we talked last week about the civil war going on in Syria. More than 300,000 Christians, by some estimates, have fled Syria since the civil war began. Christians in Syria right now find themselves east of Rock and west of Hard Place because President Assad's regime is brutal and it's oppressive. But if it collapses, what will replace it is, is likely to undertake Christian genocide. Um, there are already uh, kidnappings happening and rumors of executions. It's not the first time we've seen this sort of thing, even in the last several years. During the war in Iraq, Christians were very much in the crosshairs from both sides. Christ hating, attacking Christians was the only thing that the Shiites and the Sunnis could agree on for a long time. So Christians were left in Iraq with two choices, flee or stay and risk death. And more than half of the believers in Iraq 10 years ago are no longer there. They fled for their own safety. Egypt, same thing. Since the regime change that happened two and a half years ago, we've seen churches burned and believers attacked on a very regular basis. In the past month, we've seen a social studies teacher put on trial for blasphemy because she compared Muhammad to someone else and that was blasphemous. Uh, businesses are being singled out. Christian-owned businesses are subject to taxes that aren't enforced for any other businesses, but they, they dust off the law book 
folks and they find ways to put the pressure to make it a hostile environment for Christians to do business. Requests for political asylum just to the United States are up 600% in the last two and a half years since Mubarak stepped down. And that's the Middle East. The Middle East is not the only region in the world where things like this happen. Just in the last few months, from, from Saudi Arabia and people being sentenced to public beatings for witnessing to coworkers to people in Ubekistan being fined for owning Bibles, pastors being jailed in Kazakhstan, missionaries being, being beaten and pummeled and left within inches of death by mobs in Bangladesh. This is happening all around the world. North Korea, perhaps the worst place on this planet to be a Christian, an American tour operator was sentenced to 15 years of hard labor at a prison normally reserved for murderers and rapists just this past month, joining an estimated, well, we don't know, tens of thousands is the best guess of Christians in prison in North Korea for their faith. This is the world that we live in. Secular and, and religious news sources are in agreement. 133 nations, two-thirds of all the countries in this world, you can expect to be harassed today if you're a Christian. 111 of those nations are openly hostile to Christianity or in some way, shape, or form legally restrict its practice. And in at least 65 of those countries, you take your life in your own hands, publicly admitting to worship the true and living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Currently, 75% of the religious persecution in this world is against Christians. It affects 100 million people a year and 163,000 people will die every year this year as a direct immediate result of crimes against them because of their faith in Jesus. And the trend is getting worse. And it's been getting worse for a while. More than half of everyone who has ever given their life for Jesus Christ did so in the last 100 years. Just in the last 100 years, it's estimated that 15 million people gave their lives for Christ in the former Soviet Union from 1917 to 1980. More than a million, at least, Christians have given their lives in the Sudan since the 70s. At least a half a million in China since the 60s. 500,000 in Rwanda in just one year, 1994. And the list continues. Why do I start this way this morning? Because it's a backdrop to the passage that we're looking at in Scripture today. And unless we stop and realize that our experience in the United States is not normal, we're not going to fully appreciate what Jesus is saying. Our experience in the United States, it's not unique, but it's certainly exceptional. It's not the norm in our world today. It never has been the norm. And unless we remember that, some of what Jesus has to say is going to go over our heads. But with that as backdrop, let's read beginning in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, Jesus says to the apostle John, write this. These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan do not fear, verse 10, any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you might be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. 
We're in this two-chapter section of Revelation, chapter 2, chapter 3, often called the seven letters to seven churches because that's literally what it is. For our purposes, we've been calling it Church God's Way, what God says to the churches about how to worship him, how to love him, and how to love one another as we do so. We looked at the first letter, the letter to Ephesus, last week. If you missed it, we've got CDs by the front door. It's also on the website. We've also started podcasting this week, which I will admit I don't fully understand, but I know that we're doing it. As we started, though, as we started this section last week with the church of Ephesus, we said that Jesus uses a fairly consistent outline in each of these seven letters. He starts off talking about the people to whom he's writing the particular city, the particular church he's addressing. And then he says something about himself. He talks about the person who's writing. Obviously, it's always Jesus, but he highlights a different aspect of who he is, an aspect that's always relevant to the church he's talking to in their situation. He goes on to praise almost all of the churches. He finds something about the way that they're doing church to recognize and commend. And with most of them, he also acknowledges some problems. He offers a critique, something to address. He gives them a prescription, what they should do next, their, their action plan, if you will, and then closes with a promise for the church and for you and me. That outline worked last week pretty well. It's going to work this week. We're going to do a little bit more back and forth. We'll try to, to cue things along, but starting back in verse 8. Let's go through a little bit more slowly. We read the angel of the church in Smyrna. To, to that angel, right. Smyrna, it's about 35 miles to the north of Ephesus. So Jesus is sort of making a circuit in these letters. It's from town to town to town that he's addressing. It, like Ephesus, Smyrna is along the coast of Turkey. It's a port city, a very wealthy city, always has been, because it's on a trade route right from India on its way to Rome in a calm port it's a strategic location, both geopolitically as well as commercially. And it's a very beautiful city. That's what you'd expect from a city that's very, very wealthy. They call themselves the glory of Asia. Always have the nicest buildings, the best plantings, flowers and trees and so forth. The city still exists. Since the 1930s, it's gone by the name Izmir. But it's today the third biggest city in Turkey. Some three million people call it home. This is the town or the church within the town that Jesus is addressing here in chapter 2. Verse 8, Jesus is dictating to the apostle John. He's saying, hey, here's what I want you to write to the pastor of that church to share with the people of that church. And before we're done, we'll talk a little bit about who that pastor is. But I want to come back to that, and, and, and I want to come back to the person who's writing. Jesus has some things, obviously, to say about himself in verse 8. Let's park that for a moment and go right to the praise that we read in verse 9. He says to Smyrna, I know your tribulation and poverty. The New King James, I, I realize, says works, tribulation, and poverty. Works isn't in the best manuscripts that we have, though. Let's set that aside and let's stick with the best manuscript that actually makes a stronger statement. Jesus saying, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty. Now that seems kind of an odd juxtaposition because I just got done saying that Smyrna was a very wealthy city. How can both of those be true? Well, Smyrna was an incredibly prosperous city, but in the midst of all kinds of prosperity, there was also all kinds of persecution. Also all kinds of discrimination. Also all kinds of abuse against that church. So even, even in the land of plenty, which Smyrna was in many senses, the church in Smyrna was struggling. More, more than struggling, 
the tribulation, that's a strong word. That's heavy trials. That's serious stuff coming down. And poverty, that's abject poverty. That word means they were the poorest of the poor. And Christians, Christ, look, Christians are rarely the, the wealthiest people around, right? We know that. That's been true throughout history. Believers usually come from the lower classes. Why? Well, Jesus tells us how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Well, if you've got power, if you've got wealth, if you've got connections in this world, you tend to depend on them. When you get into a jam, you tend to use the wealth, the power, the connections that you've got to get yourself out of a jam. But the more success we have relying on the, the, the things of this world, the more we're going to depend on the things of this world, and the harder it is to realize that no matter how useful power and wealth and connections might be in this world, they're worthless in the next world. We see that playing out in India right now. If you follow what's going on through Gospel for Asia or the other ministries that are reaching out to that region, people are coming to Christ in huge numbers, but it's not from the upper classes. It's not from the people who have benefited from, from, the, from India's recent prosperity over the last couple of decades. It's, it's among the Dalits, the lowest caste, the, the, the people that are considered literally human garbage. Untouchables is how the word translates. They have nothing, absolutely nothing, and therefore they have nothing to lose. And for them, the prospect of hope in Jesus Christ is, is much more easy to, 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 to appreciate, to understand. They're running to Jesus in huge numbers, and praise God for that. That doesn't mean it's impossible for someone of means to come to Jesus Christ. Of course we see it happen. Jesus doesn't say, not any mighty, not any noble. No, he says, not many, not many mighty or noble or wealthy will come to me in 1 Corinthians. And that's then the baseline of the church since the church was the church. But what was happening in Smyrna is more than what we've seen over the last 2,000 years in the church in general. The church in Smyrna, they weren't just working class poor, they were dirt poor. They were homeless poor. They were the poorest of the poor, and they were that way simply because they were Christians. A little bit more on the history of Smyrna. Wealthy city, strategic city, but, but a critical city for Rome's trade with India, and the relationship with Rome was directly tied to Smyrna's prosperity. What does that mean? It means Rome liked Smyrna a lot, and Smyrna liked Rome, if it was possible, even more, to the point where Smyrna over time even began to worship Rome. And I'm not speaking euphemistically. In 23 AD, Smyrna sought and was awarded the privilege of building a temple to the late emperor Tiberius Caesar. That was something that came into fashion. Uh, in, the, in the early first century, when Roman emperors would die, Rome would build temples to venerate their memory. It, think, it got even worse from there. In the 80s, when the emperor Domitian took the throne, he demanded that people worship him while he was still alive. He said, hey, why wait until I'm dead? Why, why not enjoy people calling me Lord and kneeling in my presence and venerating me while I can still you know, be here to appreciate it? By law, Roman citizens, people, not even just citizens, people under Rome's authority, they had to burn incense to Domitian once a year. And when they did, they'd get a certificate, you know, like, like a concealed carry permit or something else you carry in your wallet that if anybody, you know, asked to see your certificate of having burned incense, you were required to produce that because it was a way of demonstrating loyalty to the emperor. Christians, of course, would generally refuse to do that, and it's probably how John ended up exiled to the island of Patmos. 
And it's why Christians in this city, Christians in Smyrna, verse 9, it's why they became known for their poverty and their tribulation because their faith was bad for business. And so we see many of the policies enforced against them, even some of the same ones I mentioned a moment ago that are uh, being enacted against Christians around the world today. Their property being seized or, or subject to taxes that weren't enforced on anybody else. Christian businesses being boycotted or Christian members of, of the guilds, what you and I might, might think of as the unions, either not allowed to join because they were Christians or if they got saved as members, suddenly all of the work dried up. To be a Christian in Smyrna, on the one hand, the pagans hated you. On the other hand, verse 9, John tells us the Jews were out to get them too. The Jewish religion was tolerated by Rome, barely, but it was tolerated. But Jesus says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What blasphemy? Well, a couple different ways. Chiefly, that the Jews would find things to distort or pervert to accuse the Christians of so that they would be, be even less well-regarded, be even more despised. We read about this in the book of Acts. They, they'd come against the church and accused the church of cannibalism. That's how they viewed the Lord's Supper. Well, you're eating people and, and you're, you're engaging in human sacrifice. Anything they could do to pull the church down. Why? Well, because the more people despise that group, the less they're going to despise and discriminate against my group. I'm seeing that in my hometown of St. Paul right now. Two minority groups have settled in St. Paul over the last few decades. Uh, it's a significant Somali population and a significant Hmong population. Uh, Hmong is a people group near, near Laos and near Cambodia. Both of them came to the U.S. as refugees from things happening in their own regions of the world. If they're both coming here as refugees, you'd think that they could relate to each other a little bit. And, and it turns out, no, not even a little bit. There's no love lost between them. Why? Because they're both determined not to be the lowest rung on the social ladder. The Jewish community comes against the church, we read here in verse 9. Except in God's eyes, they weren't really the Jewish community is the thing. Look again at verse 9. What's in view here? God says that they're Jews in name, but not in God's eyes. Because in God's eyes, being Jewish is not a function of heritage or lineage. In God's eyes, being Jewish is not about DNA. If you ask Jewish people in the world today, why are you Jewish? And they will look at you like you have three heads. Well, because my parents were, or because my mother was. In God's eyes, no, being, being Jewish is not about nationality. It's about heart. Romans 2, Paul says, he is not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, in the heart, in other words. Circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter. It's, it's not about the law, and it's not about the acknowledgement of men. It's about the praise of God. In essence, God is saying the Jews, yeah, the Jews are my people, but the people claiming to be Jews in Smyrna, they're not acting like my people, therefore they must not be Jews. They're not God's people. In fact, they're acting like the opposite of God's people. God calls them a synagogue of Satan. It reminds us of the interaction Jesus had with the Pharisees, right? Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you wouldn't be coming at me like this because you're not acting like one of Abraham's children and, and, and you're acting more like your father. The Pharisees said, what do you mean? God's our father. Jesus says, no, 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 no. 
You're not acting like God. If, if God was your father, you'd have some of his qualities and characteristics. You're acting like your real father, Satan. And the chips don't fall too far from the tree. It's the same kind of conversation. God expects more of his people. And it's important when we, when we go there, when we look at that, that we realize that that can be true for the church as well as for the Jews. It can be true for us as well as for Israel because it's not only Jews that can pervert beliefs and worship into something that's unholy and ungodly. We see it in the church today. I mean, all the way back in the New Testament, consistently through the New Testament, what two mistakes do we see people make? They're either confused about the identity of Jesus or they're confused about the nature of grace. The same mistakes we've been through again and again and again as we went through John's epistles, Jude's letter, the same mistakes that we see in the world today. False teachers either wanting to subtract something from who Jesus is. He's either not fully God or he's not fully man or he's not both at the same time. They either want to subtract something from who Jesus is or they want to add something to his finished work on the cross. Believe in Jesus and. Believe in Jesus plus. The pious tongue danger that arises from within, one person called it. An example just this week, the Supreme Bishop, Presiding Bishop, Head Bishop of the Episcopal Church was teaching in Venezuela recently, talking about Acts 16, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. It's the chapter where Paul and Silas end up in jail and they're singing at midnight and the walls come down and the jailer gets saved. Before that happens, on their way to jail, Paul encounters a slave girl who's demon-possessed and he drives the demon from her. The Episcopal bishop says what Paul did was completely wrong. He shouldn't have done that. What Paul did, and I'm quoting, deprived her of her gift of spiritual awareness. And how dare Paul do that? And the reason, she goes on, Paul clearly can't abide something he won't see as beautiful or holy, so he tries to destroy it. We're talking about casting out a demon. He refuses to see demonic activity as beautiful or holy. Talk about your synagogues of Satan. But this is the world we live in, and it was the world that Smyrna existed in. Pagans to the left, people who called themselves Jews but whose actions said otherwise to their right, poverty and tribulation in the middle. In verse 9, Jesus says, I know. And he really does. There is no believer, living or dead, who has gone through anything that Jesus doesn't know. Not just because he's God who sees and knows everything, but because he's the man who experienced everything. Poverty, alienation, lies, accusation, torture, execution, Jesus knows. Verse 9, Jesus says, I get it. Everything that's hard, everything that's humiliating, everything that's exhausting, I not only see it, Jesus says, I shared it. But here's what you have to realize, still verse 9, Jesus goes on to say to the church of Smyrna, it's all true, it's all happening, and I can't promise it's going to stop anytime soon, but here's what you have to remember. You're poor, but look up. Pull your head up from your circumstances and realize, recognize you're also very, very rich. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and poverty, and I know that you know, he says to Smyrna, but here's what you might be forgetting. You're rich. Jesus says, I know you're rich because I know that I said so in James 2, verse 5. I've chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that I promised to those who love me. 
He says, I know you're rich because right now, even under persecution, instead of laying up treasure on earth where moth and rust can get at them and thieves can break in and steal them, you're laying up treasure in heaven. Which seems, I don't know if anybody's ever tried to lay that on you when you've been really going through something heavy and they've, they've come at you with that or, or maybe they've hit you with Romans 8.28. Hey, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. And you just want to say, go away. I mean, it's true, but not now. <laughs> it might sound like Jesus is putting lipstick on a pig here, but think about it for a moment. What he's saying is true. What would you rather have? The riches of the world for a moment or the treasure of heaven forever? Jesus has picked the treasure of heaven. In Hebrews, he says, endure great struggle with suffering, accept reproach and tribulation. Let people plunder your goods if they really want to. But know, while it's all happening, that you've got a better and enduring possession for yourself in heaven. This is not all there is. And however bad this gets doesn't change how good heaven is going to be. This is why in verse 8, Jesus chooses for himself the title that he does. If we go back there and we look at the person for a moment, of all the ways that he could have cherry-picked back in chapter 1, all of the, those long lists of titles and descriptions he gave us, he says from verse 17 and 18, he says, I'm the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Why those? Because they speak of eternity. Jesus is speaking to the suffering church. He's reminding them, hey, look at me. There was nothing before me. There's no such thing as after me. I created this world. One day I'm going to end this world. And yeah, while you're in the world, all who are godly will suffer persecution. But so did I, Jesus says. So did I. And look how that story turned out. Jesus is reminding them he was poor and persecuted, abused and tortured and executed, but death couldn't hold him. He rose again. And he's reminding the church of Smyrna, so will we. We will rise together with Christ. I am the resurrection and the life, says Jesus. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And in the meantime, we get to tell people about him. In the meantime, we get to bear witness to his name. In the meantime, we get to have fellowship with his suffering. Go back to people for a second. The city of Smyrna, the glory of Asia. And it was. It was beautiful and still is. But it's interesting. The name Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh is in gold, frankincense, and Ever wonder why those three gifts to the infant, actually the toddler, Jesus? Well, it, it has to do with Jesus being prophet, priest, and king. To the king of those three, you obviously give gold to the priest, which would be the most appropriate gift. Probably incense, which leaves myrrh to the prophet. Why? Myrrh is a burial spice. It's used to wrap bodies including the body of a prophet who declared in John 2.19, destroy this body and on the third day I'll rise again. That was Jesus the prophet, the same prophet who was wrapped in sheets, wrapped in myrrh, only to rise again. And what makes it even cooler is when we read in Isaiah 60 about the millennium when Jesus is ruling and reigning for a thousand years in Jerusalem. Once again, his people will bring him gold. Once again, they're going to bring him frankincense. They don't bring him myrrh. When Jesus comes back, myrrh is not one of the gifts offered to him. Why? Because it's no longer relevant. 
Jesus died once for the sins of all mankind. He's never going to die again, and neither will we, at least not spiritually. The person of Christ passed before us into death, and because he did, and because he rose again, we know that's the journey we're going to take. We know that we're going to follow him into death, but then again into life. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. One day we're going to follow Him. We're going to dwell with Him in glory forever. And Jesus' point is knowing that. Knowing that in Him we have already overcome sin and death. Knowing that in Him we have victory over death right now. We should be able to find in Him the strength to endure, the, the, the courage to face whatever this world is going to throw at us. And verse 10, Jesus says, that's what we should do next. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. This is the prescription. Verse 10, literally Jesus says, don't be afraid. Or, or, or actually even more literally, stop being afraid. He assumes that we are, and he tells us to cut it out. Stop being afraid. It's a natural response, but don't have a natural response. Have a supernatural response. Have a response birthed by the Holy Spirit in you. Have a response that knows and recognizes and acknowledges that the worst thing that this world can do is kill us. And then what? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I was in Philadelphia for a couple days last week. A friend of mine flew me out to help him with something, and as long as I was out there, I snuck down to the East Coast Pastors Conference for a day. Pastor Joe Foch is a guy that I've greatly admired for a long time. Big church, 10,000 person church, and they have, they're in the middle of the city in a not great neighborhood. They've got pretty intense security because they've had some weird things happen over the years. But as many police officers as they have in the fellowship, as many former military as they have, they have a one very specific non-negotiable rule no one's allowed to carry. Not even active duty police officers. Pastor Joe asked them to leave their guns at home. No deadly force allowed in the church, no matter what anybody is doing. Anybody who comes in with bad intent, and, and it happens, anybody who comes in clearly wishing somebody harm, the plan, the protocol is anybody serving in any ministry instantly becomes part of the security ministry, and they rush the person. And just throw body after body after body at them until the threat is subdued. Why? Why in the world does that make sense? Pastor Joe's philosophy, if anyone's going to get killed at his church, he wants it to be someone that he is sure is going to heaven. So believers are invited to put themselves in harm's way. This is radical. This is crazy from the perspective of the world, but if we really believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, then it starts to make sense. Not just Pastor Joe's security ministry, but Jesus' perspective when he tells us, hey, the suffering of this world can't compare with the glory that awaits. Even when it gets bad, your decision-making shouldn't be about what you see here. Your decision-making should be about what you know is beyond. And he says it's going to get bad. Verse 10, he says, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you might be tested. You'll have tribulation 10 days. Jesus isn't sugarcoating it. He knows and he wants us to know that we've got an enemy of our soul. An enemy that Scripture says right now is the God of this world who uses the power of this world and the pain of this world and the sin of this world to try to destroy us. Jesus wants us to know that, but he also wants us to know that no matter how Satan tries, he's not going to pull it off. Satan cannot destroy us. And that's why Jesus says, don't be afraid. 
Is Satan a formidable enemy? You bet. Can he hurt us? Yes. Can he kill us? Probably. But he cannot destroy us. And honestly, the only time, the only opportunity he has to touch us is very, very limited. Verse 10, the church in Smyrna, Jesus says, it's only going to be 10 days. Commentators have got all kinds of theories about what this 10 days is. Is it the 10 emperors up through Constantine? Is it the 10 years that Diocletian persecutes Christians? I think it's easier than that. Remember that Revelation, Jesus says, is signified. It's written in symbols and in allusions. 10 days, at least a half a dozen times in the Old Testament, is, is used specifically idiomatically to mean a short time. And I think that's what it means here. For a short time, Satan is going to come after us with guns blazing. For a short time, he's going to get some licks in. For a short time, he's probably going to make this world feel like a prison or like a bad dream that you can't wake up from, but only for a short time. Because after that is forever with Jesus. Now we might ask ourselves, why, why even for a short time then? If we know it's going to come to an end, why don't we just hit fast forward and be there now? Why does Jesus let bad stuff happen to his kids? Well, Scripture offers at least a half a dozen different answers, and you know them as well as I do. We know that pain can be God's correction, his way of telling us, whoa, step back from the edge. You don't want to go there. Pain can be a method of education. Scripture says that even Jesus learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Trials can teach us things. Sometimes God uses trials for prevention. Think about Paul. Paul had a thorn in his flesh, some sort of affliction God didn't remove. Why? Scripture tells us so that Paul wouldn't get proud. God allowed it to continue in his life to keep him humble. God also uses trials for purification, to refine us. Sometimes he turns up the temperature to burn off all of the stuff that isn't Jesus. Sometimes when we, what we experience as grief is really evacuation. It's God pulling somebody else out of the game because he knows that the best thing he can do for that person is to not allow them to continue in this existence. First Kings chapter 14, we saw an example of it a couple Wednesdays ago. Finally, and I think maybe most importantly, pain can be for the purpose of demonstration, to show the world that as we go through trials, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because we know God is with us. We can deal with trials differently than people who don't have the Holy Spirit living in their hearts can deal with them. And when we do, when we allow God to give us peace, even joy in the midst of suffering, we say to the world, hey, look, there's something going on here. Ask me the reason for the hope that's within me, because I really want to tell you. And we could spend the entire morning talking about those. But here's the thing, even if we did, even knowing the reasons that God allows pain, academically, theoretically, theologically. That's not the same as understanding why God is allowing this particular pain in your particular life at this particular moment. When I serve as a chaplain, I don't even try to understand. I don't even, I don't even go there, and I never try. When someone says, why does this happen? I, I never try to explain because I can't. All I can do is remind people we, we don't know why. We don't know why bad things happen to good people. We know generally, but specifically, we've got no clue. But what we do know is God. And we know that anything that happens to us in this world happens with His permission. 
it happens with his permission, then it means that he has a purpose. We know his purposes are always good, even if we don't understand them. And that's what Jesus is asking the church in Smyrna to do in verse 10. He's not asking them to understand what's happening. He's asking them to accept what's happening. He's asking them to accept that a God who loves them is allowing some things in their lives, and he's asking them to push through it. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Because that's the other thing Satan can't rob us of. He can't rob us of the blessings we have in Christ. He can't deny us the rewards that Jesus promises those who believe and those who endure. He's not preaching works, by the way. Jesus isn't saying, hey, if we persevere, he'll give us life. He's already given us life. He did that at the cross. We're saved by grace through faith. That's a gift, not a reward. The reward comes later. The reward comes from persevering through the trials that this world throws at us. And the reward here is pictured as a crown. I think that's interesting because it's not crowned like a king. It's crowned like, like an Olympic athlete gets when they're standing on the platform receiving the medal. It's a crown that you receive after winning the race. It's the crown that the author of Hebrews envisions saying if we lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race set before us, there are crowns, there are rewards waiting for us in heaven. How do we run that race? The author of Hebrews tells us. Tells us the same thing that Jesus already told us. We look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We remember that for the joy set before him, he endured some stuff. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. But how did the story end? Right now, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting next to the throne of God. The way we endure is we consider Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners. And when we keep that front of mind, when we keep that stored up in our hearts, we won't become weary and discouraged in our soul. That's Jesus' prescription to the church in Smyrna. And it's a prescription to us. Verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now before we wrap up, did you notice something? Our, our, our nice outline with all of the alliteration and all of the Ps, it got messed up along the way there, didn't it? We went from praise to prescription. What happened to the problems? Skipped some pages. No, there weren't any. One of two churches about which Jesus finds nothing to criticize. One is Smyrna, the other is Philadelphia. Interestingly, the only two cities that don't disappear between the time that these letters are written and today. All of the other cities mentioned in these chapters fell into ruins for at least a time. Not Smyrna, not Philadelphia. Jesus has no criticism for the church of Smyrna because people there were doing what they were supposed to do, enduring pain, enduring persecution, and then in the process, they're drawing closer to the Lord. They're clinging to him. Last week, Jesus said to Ephesus, hey, you left your first love. That's not the story of Smyrna even a little bit. They're hanging on to Jesus for dear life. And because they are, they might be the poorest church, but they're also the purest church. They're being tested, but man, are they passing the test. And in a way, I read this and I get a little jealous. Jealous of the persecution? No. I think it's going to come soon enough. I'll wait. I'm not jealous of how they got there, but I'm a little jealous of where they were spiritually. Think about it. What would it be like to stand as a church? All of us. Everybody here, everybody who was here for a service, what would it be like to stand before the true and living God and have them say, hey, Calvary, Wichita, you're doing great. Just keep doing what you're doing. You'll be fine. 
I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that maybe that wouldn't be the conversation God would have with us. I don't think many churches in the Western world would hear exactly that from God. Why? Because since this letter was written, Satan has changed tactics. He couldn't beat us, so he joined us. John 16, 33, In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The church of Smyrna believed him. They said, okay, Jesus, we're going to just keep our eyes, our heart riveted on you. Because on the other side of whatever this world throws at us is eternity in heaven. And we'll wait. We'll hang on. We'll cling to you. You'll see us through this storm. And then they'll be forever. Be of good cheer, Jesus says. And the church of Smyrna believed him. So they learned what Jesus taught, and they learned to count it all joy when they fell into various trials. But you know what? Satan learned. And he learned what the church in America, I think, has been slow to learn, that it may be an even better weapon against the church than trials, than poverty, than persecution. Maybe an even better way to bring us down is the absence of those things. Because in a sense, here in our nation, we've been attacked, not with persecution, but with comfort and convenience. We've been assaulted by indulgence and laziness which leaves us crippled and and fundamentally unable to function when the heavy stuff really does come down. Because we don't have any practice remembering these things. We don't have any skill at applying these things, and we've got no reason really to remind ourselves of these things. But we should be. We should be forever and continually reminding each other of Jesus' promise to the church at Smyrna. He who overcomes, verse 11, shall not be hurt by the second death. If we're born twice, we die once. If we're born once, we die twice. Two deaths. The first is physical. The first death separates our soul from our body. The second death is spiritual. It separates our soul from from God at the great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation. God throws the souls of those who haven't accepted his mercy into outer darkness. The second death. If we're only born once, if we're not born again in Christ, that's our destiny. We die once in this body, we die again in our soul. But if we're born twice, if we're born and then born again, physical death is going to come unless the rapture comes first. But spiritual death will never visit us. That's God's promise to the church of Smyrna. And it's his promise to you and me that if we're born again, our physical death is just going to translate us from this existence into the next existence. And our challenge is to remember that. Our challenge is to remind each other of that. Our challenge is to keep in mind and to keep on our lips and to keep as part of the DNA of this fellowship. Few of us, I think, are going to die a martyr's death. I might be wrong. But in history, relatively few people die a martyr's death. The challenge is to let Jesus' promise spur us on, though, to lead a martyr's life, prepared to sacrifice everything, willing to endure anything. Because the goal of this life, Jesus reminds us in these four verses, it's not to avoid trials. We devote an awful lot of time and energy to try to make ourselves comfortable and avoid pain. That's human. It's natural. But what's supernatural isn't avoiding trials. What's supernatural and what the goal of this life should be for the believer 
It's not avoiding trials. It's glorifying God in the trials. Interesting thing about myrrh as we wrap things up. Doesn't give off a lot of fragrance until it's crushed. But once it's hard-pressed, you can't escape the aroma. It's everywhere. It fills the room. It gets into your clothes. Pastor of Smyrna, either at the time this was written or shortly, very shortly afterwards, was a guy named Polycarp, one of the early church fathers, the last pastor to be personally mentored, ministered to by the Apostle John. And as we said earlier, he and everyone else under Rome's authority, they were required at this time to burn incense to the emperor Domitian. Polycarp refused. So the government puts a death sentence out on him. His friends take him out to the country to hide out. While he's out there in the country praying, he has a vision of the pillow that he's lying on swallowed up by fire. He walks up and tells his friends, well, you know, here's the thing. I'm going to be burnt. Just matter of fact. He said, okay, this is what God has for me. This is the next thing that God has. This is, this is ministry that may not make sense, but it's what God has shown me. He has for me to do. Well, meanwhile, soldiers have tortured one of his friends back in town. They find out where Polycarp is hiding. They come to arrest him. At this point, it's 155 AD. Polycarp's 86 years old. So they're arresting this old man, and they're a little embarrassed about it, but orders are orders, so they stick him on the back of a donkey. They start walking him back into town. And on the way, they're trying to persuade him, look, just, just offer a pinch of incense before a statue of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, and all of this can go away. That's all he had to do. And they pleaded with him, look, we don't want to do this. You don't want us to do this. Polycarp says, I, I can't do this. I, I can't worship Caesar. Well, they get so frustrated, they push him off of the donkey. He has to walk the rest of the way back into town. By the time they get to the city, the crowd is gathered in the arena. They've already put a dozen believers to death, um, you know, watched them be eaten by lions and animals for sport. They hear Polycarp is entering the city limits. They start chanting, bring out Polycarp, bring out Polycarp. Well, they bring him out to stand before the proconsul, who tries once more to get him to renounce Christ. Take the oath, he says to Polycarp. Just, just renounce Christ, I'll set you free. Polycarp says, for 86 years I've served Jesus. Why would I revile my king now? Proconsul finally gives up. He announces to the crowd, Polycarp has confessed he's a Christian. The crowd shouts, let the lions loose. The problem is that the lions had already been taken away for the day. Well, then burn them. And Polycarp remembers the dream. And he says, okay, this is, this, is, this is the next ministry that God has for me. And he says to his executioners, guys, this is well. I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. So why do you delay? Come, do your will. If God is allowing this, Polycarp says, then God's got a purpose. Even burning him alive, if God is allowing it, God promises to bring good from it. It just means that this part of his existence is over, and in a moment, he's going to be in the next part. That's perfect love, casting out fear. Casting out fear of suffering, casting out fear of death. Be not afraid, Jesus says. Polycarp's living it. So they arrange the pile of wood, and they stick the pole in the middle, and they tie him to it, and Polycarp prays out loud, I thank you that you've graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I might receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. At which point they torch the wood, the fire goes up, but it doesn't touch him. God puts a hedge of protection around him. The fire doesn't go near him. The executioner gets so frustrated, he grabs a long spear, spears him in the side, blood flows out, puts the fire out. 
thousands of witnesses there to see it. Polycarp still dies, of course. But the thing that's remarkable, he dies on God's terms. He dies hard-pressed, crushed. But he's giving off the fragrance of Christ. Interesting thing about myrrh, the other place it shows up in Scripture, in addition to being a burial spice, it's a perfume that anoints the bridegroom when he comes for the bride. We see it in Psalms, we see it in Song of Solomon. He's crushed, but in being crushed, he gives off the fragrance, the aroma of Christ. And he's just one of many, many, many men and women who for the last 2,000 years have done the same thing. The harder they're pressed, the more the world sees Christ in them. Pastor Saeed, hard-pressed. But he's smuggling these letters out of prison, written on scraps of newspaper, encouraging us. Not saying, hey, you need to pray for me because things are getting really bad. No, he's sending out letters talking about the importance of forgiving his captors and, and asking God to have mercy on the doctors who aren't treating him and, and, and rejoicing in what a privilege it is knowing that, that churches around the world that really don't like each other very much are finding this thing to come together around and pray for someone who's in chains. So as we pray for Pastor Saeed, as we pray for the people that, that in this amazing time that we live in, we, we're given visibility of an awareness of, we also have an opportunity to consider what happens when we're hard-pressed. Do we remember the church of Smyrna? Do we remember that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us? We're repositories of that glory. And what could compare to that? What do we do when we're hard-pressed? If we aren't now, we will be. Might be sometime before the secret service comes, but in the meantime, Satan comes. Comes against our family, comes against our finances, our health, our safety, our security. What do we do? The time to decide is before the heavy stuff starts. Are we going to curl up and feel sorry for ourselves? Or are we going to decide ahead of time that every single trial we face, everything that God allows in our lives is an opportunity to let God use us? An opportunity to give the world just a tiny glimpse of the glory waiting for us and the fragrance of Christ that dwells within us. Lord, it's hard to pray for trials and truthfully we don't. We're not Puritans. We're not Catholics. We don't want to do penance. What we want, Lord, is your perfect will in our lives. Whatever that might bring. Whatever you have for us. Lord, we're deciding as an act of will to say yes, Lord. If we don't understand it, if we don't like it, if we don't enjoy it, what is that compared to knowing that we're living to please and to serve you. And that how we comport ourselves in trials, whether we choose to focus on you, whether we draw upon the resources that you provide to endure, has everything to do with the blessings that we enjoy in heaven. Lord, what can this world throw at us that can compare with forever? So we choose, Lord, and we choose you. Walk with us. Go before us into the valley of the shadow of death that we might fear no evil and that we might 
say to the world, we fear no evil. And people might look at us and say, what is with them? They fear no evil. And We pray that it would be true because we know that you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope the Lord has spoken to you through his word today. If you've got questions or comments about this message, we'd love to hear from you. And if you're in the Wichita area and don't have a church that you call home, I hope you'll drop by and check us out. You can always get current service times and directions at area code 316-263-3804 or online at www.ccwichita.org. Most importantly, though, please remember, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. And the penalty for that sin is eternal death. But God in his mercy sent Jesus to pay that price, to die that death for us. That's why Jesus went to the cross 2,000 years ago. He died so we wouldn't have to. And he rose again in glory, promising eternal life with him forever for those who put their trust in him. So if you haven't decided what to do with the cross, why not say yes to Christ's free gift of salvation right now? You can do it wherever you are simply by praying, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I confess I am a sinner and I need your free gift of salvation. Jesus, please come into my life. Be my Savior and be my Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The scripture tells us if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you are his. So pick up a Bible and start reading. Begin at the Gospel of John to understand and rejoice in everything it means to be a child of God. If you're in the Wichita area, I hope that you'll stop by. We'll make sure you have a Bible along with some materials to help you begin your walk with the Lord. If you're not close by, feel free to give us a call. We'll be glad to help you find a solid Bible teaching church in your area. Thanks again for listening. May the Lord richly bless you as you commit your ways to Him.